Please be seated. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with all of you here today, and thank you for the invitation to be among you. When I was in college, I took a geology course. I needed a science credit, and it was an easy class to get into. It's over 30 years later now. I have to confess, I don't remember a thing from that class. Likewise, I took calculus my first semester. I don't remember much about that class either, except that it was really hard. One thing that I do remember well from my days in college is my social security number. Because you see, I I can't help but remember that number. I, I, I had to use it almost daily in college. It was back in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, and we used that social security number for everything on campus. I I put it on every form that I filled out. I put it on every test that I took. I went to a big public university, so the the faculty and staff, they weren't going to know my name or, or recognize my face when I walked in the room. My identity was tied to that nine-digit number. And if I couldn't produce it, they couldn't look up and verify anything about me. Now, to be sure, throughout college, there were other demarcations that impacted my identity. Like most students, I started out there as a freshman, which was an identity marker that indicated to the entire student body that I was new and that I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to get around. I I didn't know how to traverse the social scene on campus. I didn't know how to skip classes and still get decent grades. I knew nothing On the other end of the spectrum, there were the seniors, and they knew everything about life on campus, but were quickly realizing that when it came to how the rest of the world worked, they still knew practically nothing. Then there was your major, an additional demarcation that told a lot about you. If you were pre-med, it was assumed that you were studious, driven, focused. If you were a political science major, you were ambitious and usually very aware about the, uh, the political and world event scene. Journalism majors, they were nice people, but they were a little weird at parties. They kept asking you questions and writing things down. And Y'all don't even get me started about religion majors. The point is that when I was in college, I noticed there were lots of ways to categorize people. But when it all came down, it didn't matter whether you were a freshman or a senior. It didn't matter your major, what classes you took, or who you knew. When it all came down, we were all numbers. That social security number, it it superseded and transcended any other identity that we thought we might have. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, how sad for you, Bill. You went to this great big school and you got reduced to a number. There were advantages to this. 
You see, this number, this core identity, was also the great equalizer among us. So whether you were on track to graduate summa cum laude, or you were on academic probation, no matter what your year, major, or social grouping, if your number was in the system, you had totally equal access to all the rights and privileges that came with being a student. Now, I've spent some time with this epistle lesson, this text from Ephesians. It's a text that seems to me to be all about core identity. But before we dive too far into it, it's important for us to understand a couple of things in the context of this this letter, this mail that we are reading. Now, some of Paul's letters, they get very specific very, very clear, and they're pointing to a relationship that Paul had with that church. Sometimes he'll, he'll mention a person in the church or, or something that had recently happened there. There's none of that in this letter. Some biblical scholars like Ralph Martin would say that this indicates that the letter we're reading was actually probably a circular letter. In this day and time, we might refer to it as more of a form letter. It's a letter that was going out to several different churches, and we happened to be catching the letter while it was in the hands of the Ephesians. What that means is that the material he's covering in this letter are big picture items. These are big things that would have applied to all of the churches that the letter, where, where the letter would have been read. Now, at this point in the story, Christianity is growing terribly rapidly. It, it had started as this branch of Judaism, but through Paul's work, it's bigger than that. There's still lots of Jewish Christians, but the biggest new audience are Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. And this causes a big problem. The church is becoming this weird mix of Jews and Gentiles. Both sides had really different ways of doing everything, from what they wore to the way they created and ordered families to what they ate. Jews would have been strictly kosher and Gentiles not. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute being in this kind of church. Imagine what it would be like to live in a community that was that different. Imagine the eye rolls and snide remarks even at the church potluck dinners. Really? You had to put the bacon bits in the salad? Now imagine the knockdown, drag-out fights that could happen at the vestry meetings. Tension between Jews and Gentiles in the church was a huge issue. We see it in Paul's other letters. We see it in Acts when he's talking with Peter. There appears to be so much strife, so much disagreement, such dissent and distrust. Just in this one chapter of this letter, we hear Paul use the word peace four times. So a chief aim in the letter is to create a new baseline identity, one that is neither wholly Jewish or Gentile, a new Christian identity. But that's a tough sell for Paul, 
Because it means that people have to set down a lot of things that previously defined them as people. All these cultural practices from food to family to appearance, levels and structures of power, it was all getting changed, bent. He even uses the term abolish the law in this text. Y'all, when we stop and think about it, it's a miracle that this whole Christianity movement even got up and rolling. Now, in my ministry, which includes mission immersion programs for youth in Asheville, in Raleigh, and in Memphis, we are trying to work on these issues of our core baseline identity. And as our young people in our programs are meeting our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness, Uh, our friends who are struggling in poverty, dealing with mental illness or, or addictions. We're trying to help our young people see past false labels and false identities that some of these neighbors receive. Labels like needy or lazy or inferior or dangerous. Instead, we want to help young people see our neighbors for the fullness of who they are including identities like artist, musician, brilliant chess player, community leader, friend, prophet, and most importantly, a baseline identity, fellow and equal child of God. I watched this past week as your youth from all souls met some of our neighbors in Memphis at the St. Mary's Episcopal Cathedral during their weekly service and community breakfast. Then they went next door to Constance Abbey, which is a ministry of the cathedral, to support folks who have made the choice to help their neighbors even while they are still receiving help themselves. Now last week here at All Souls, we heard the wisdom and insights of our fellow Ashevillian Reverend James Lee. He pointed out and highlighted for us the work that there is left to do in Asheville in terms of the way that black and brown-bodied people are being treated and regarded. Now, I know that this congregation is in the midst of a faithful process to deeply consider what role the cathedral should have in terms of bringing about racial justice and equity here in Asheville. And this letter to the Ephesians, it says, In Christ's flesh He has made us one and broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. It talks of making one new humanity in place of the two. Y'all, in some ways, it sounds like Paul's writing this letter directly to us. And I know, I know that there are many faithful and loving people here in this room who want very much to make this kind of unity a reality here in Asheville, a reality where all people of all kinds are treated equally and equitably, a place where we all have access to quality education, quality housing, quality employment, and quality health care. And I'm sure that there are many people here who would be eager to go ahead and drop these other false identities 
identities of whiteness and blackness, which turns out to be a racial construct from previous generations, created for the purpose of keeping one group held up while another is held down. Many of us might like to just go on and get on with this, not even understanding what that might mean. Some of us would gladly give up those identities knowing a great deal of just what that might mean. Here's the thing. In as much as we might desire to go quickly through that kind of process, to run headlong towards the goal of unity that Paul is speaking of, to go ahead and claim this new shared identity of full equality, I'm coming to understand that there is an additional step in the process. See, there are leaders here in our local African-American community, as well as national leaders on this topic, like Ruby Sales, who I got to hear recently at the Wild Goose Festival, and they are trying to explain to people like me that there's an additional crucial step in the process of healing and unity. Y'all, the step is somewhat paradoxical. In order to set aside, in order to transcend any identity of white American or the historical identity as oppressor, we first must fully own and admit to the pain that that identity has caused others. It occurs to me that there is a reason why in dismantling apartheid in South Africa, there was created not just a reconciliation committee, but a truth and reconciliation committee. What does that mean? Well, for me personally, I'm finding that it means I have to begin this process by admitting that I grew up in a home in the South where racial slurs were common and relatively accepted. I grew up in a place where the hierarchy of white privilege was tolerated, even nurtured. I first have to admit that I come from a long lineage of folks who were oppressive to others and that I still personally get some privileges that result from the oppression dealt by my ancestors. Hopefully, by continuing to speak that aloud, continuing to admit it, continuing to own up to the sins of our past and our present, and then taking some action to try and correct it, well, that's when healing actually starts to take place. That is when unity well, it becomes a natural consequence to the process. Over and over again, in Paul's letters, he's pointing to Jesus as the path out of division and strife. The one who was considered sinless took on the sin of the world, an act of sacrifice for reconciliation, bringing people together, creating something new. Throughout Scripture, we see the symbol of the Jewish temple, it was in our Old Testament text about the, the idea of creating it. It is really the ultimate symbol of privilege because it was built with 
insiders and then outsiders and further outsiders and the really outsider. Paul picks up on what Jesus said about the temple. Jesus talked over and over again about tearing the whole thing down and then rebuilding it. Here in our text, Paul talks about this new structure Jesus is putting into place with different kinds of bricks and stones blended together to make a new household, a new dwelling place with Christ under it as its cornerstone. Don't be misled. It's not easy work. As our gospel lesson teaches us today, it's exhausting and hard doing this kind of healing ministry work. Jesus and the disciples, they try to escape it for just a minute, and they can't. The people come to them and need healing and help, so they keep at it, doing what they can, where they can, when they can. Friends, when I was a freshman in college, I had to own the fact that I was a newbie and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know my place in the system yet. And that year, there was a lot of late nights and even some tears learning what to do. But I also knew that I was starting a journey, and commitment to the journey of getting the degree would ultimately keep me moving forward towards something greater than where I was. May each of us and all of us together stay committed to and focused on the journey that God has for us right here in this community. And may we keep allowing ourselves to be challenged, keep learning and growing, moving forward to a day when all people will know and be known by their core identity, equal and beloved children of God. Amen.